So we open to John chapter 10 as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John. And we're in part two of the passage that relates to Jesus' proclamation as his being the Good Shepherd. And this narrative, this dialogue, has stemmed from Jesus' encounter with the man who was born blind. Jesus healed this man. He was a beggar who basically stayed outside of the temple all the time depending upon the generosity of other people to help him meeting his needs. So this man who was born blind, never seen the light of day, one day encounters the gracious Savior who comes and makes a mud pack out of spit and dirt and places it over his eyes and heals the man. The man is brought to the religious authorities to make some kind of an official statement about this miraculous thing. People didn't get healed from blindness. People understood that only God could do that in the life of an individual. So as this man is brought to these these religious authorities for an official statement, they begin to interrogate him, questioning whether or not he really was born blind, whether he was ever blind at all. Brings in the parents to validate the claim that was made. And after this intense interrogation that takes place, The Pharisees are unable to refute the reality that a miracle had been performed in this man's life. There was nothing they could do to undo the miracle that Jesus had performed, the profession that he had made that Jesus is from God, where he then is excommunicated from the synagogue because of his profession of faith, because of his willingness to debate the religious authorities and to paint them in a corner that they couldn't get out of. And so this most harsh punishment to be excommunicated from religious way of life as an Israelite, to be cut off from the social life of a Jew, is this man's sentence for this healing and for his profession of faith. And so when Jesus learns about this, he seeks the man out. It's one of the few occasions that we find where Jesus actually sought someone out. But he seeks him out in order to remove the spiritual blindness from this man's eyes. And it is in this very brief conversation that's recorded in the latter verses in chapter 9 that this man recognizes who Jesus is and he worships him. This indicates that he has made a profession of faith in Christ. This profession of faith takes place in public. And as always, there are some Pharisees around who see and hear what's going on. And they take issue with the statement that Jesus makes in verse 39 where he says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who may see may become blind. They understood what Jesus was talking about and they refute that by saying, We are not also blind, are we? And this begins this conversation that Jesus has as as a result of this healing and this questioning that is brought to him by the Pharisees. And in this parable, excuse me, in this allegory that takes place around the Good Shepherd, Jesus is going to contrast the difference between himself and the religious leaders who had excommunicated this man as false shepherds. And so, by way of very brief summary, the contrast that we see here is that the religious leaders are the false shepherds. Rather than celebrating this man's miraculous turn of fate by being healed from his blindness, They instead interrogate him and then excommunicate him from the synagogue. Jesus refers to these false shepherds as thieves and robbers. They care nothing about the sheep. They only do what they do for the way that it can benefit them. They only have a self-interest 
and what the people can do for them, not what they are supposed to do for the people. By comparison, Jesus is the good shepherd. He says that I call my sheep out of the sheepfold. I call them by name. That means He calls us individually. He just doesn't yell into the sheep pen so that any sheep might come out. He calls those who are His own. He calls them by name and they recognize His voice and they come out to Him. After they have come out, He leads them to pasture. He feeds them and He cares for them. He goes on to say that He is the door of the sheepfold. Now, if you weren't here last week, I showed you a picture of a common ancient sheepfold, just a stone structure with an opening for the sheep to come in and come out. And oftentimes in the remote parts of the pasture where there wasn't a communal sheepfold, a shepherd would bring his sheep in and he himself would sit in the doorway and he would become the door. If anything or any person was going to come into the sheepfold, they would have to go through the door. If any sheep was going to exit the sheepfold, they would have to go through the door of the shepherd. And this is what Jesus says, I am the door of the sheepfold. And what He means by that is I am the door of salvation. Jesus isn't one of many ways to the Father. He is the only way. And in the sense of the sheepfold, here it transitions into those that have been redeemed. The redeemed only come through the door of Jesus Himself. So we continue now and pick up in this narrative in John chapter 10. We're going to read verses 11 through 21 and finish our section today. Here's what Jesus goes on to say. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So these last two verses is what communicates to us that this is a direct connection and tie-in into the healing of the blind man, and it's immediately following this man's profession of faith after his excommunication from the synagogue. So picking up in our outline, number four here, Jesus cares for his sheep. He doesn't just care. It's not a generic term. He cares for the sheep. A little three-letter word is important there. You just don't care about your children, right? You care for your children. There is a vested interest. There is an increased level of care when it says that He cares for His sheep. Now, Jesus saying, I am the Good Shepherd, is another one of the I Am statements that are recorded in the Gospel of John. And it is Jesus' assertion 
that he is the fulfillment of all the references to God in the Old Testament that relate to him being the shepherd of his people. There are dozens of verses and passages that communicate this intimate care that God has for his people as the shepherd over his flock. A couple of these we looked at last week. Psalm 7720. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 77, excuse me, 79:13. So we your people and the sh- and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever to all generations we will tell of your praise. Psalm 100 verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And the most famous, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world that He created, it was prophesied by Ezekiel in chapter 34, verse 23, that I will set over them My people, one shepherd, My servant David, and He will feed them. He will feed them Himself and be their shepherd. Now, David has been dead for several hundreds of years, and so we know that this is a messianic prophecy that communicates that from the line of David, God is going to send a shepherd, and He Himself is going to be the shepherd of the people, and He Himself will care for the people. It won't be delegated out to others. It will be Jesus Himself as the Messiah who will feed and care for His people. This is what Jesus is claiming to have fulfilled and making Himself out to be the Good Shepherd. God would one day send a shepherd and that day has arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, when Jesus declares Himself to be the Good Shepherd, He is saying, I am the fulfillment of the Good Shepherd motif that you have heard about all your lives. Good here refers to him being the genuine shepherd. It's a contrast to the hired hand that we are introduced to here in verse 12. Now this could be very similar to the doorkeeper or the gatekeeper who sits in the doorway out at pasture. He's been hired to take that responsibility by the shepherds. But unexpectedly, this good shepherd not only calls his sheep to himself and leads them out to pasture, letter A, the good shepherd dies for his sheep. Second part of verse 11, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, you and I don't know much about shepherding, do we? Not a bit, unless we've read about it. But shepherding could sometimes be quite dangerous. If there was a thief who wanted to come and steal the sheep, you would be in the way and he could bring you bodily harm. If there was a predatory animal that was in the area and he got wind of the sheep and wanted to come and make some trouble, then you would be in the way. In 1 Samuel 17, David tells Saul, the king, of his killing of a bear a bear, and the killing of a lion when he was out tending the sheep. So it was possible that a shepherd could die accidentally while trying to protect the sheep. But Jesus is talking about something that is quite different from the accidental death of the shepherd. The shepherd would never intend to die to protect his sheep, but Jesus says that he will die 
sacrificially. Jesus is going to become the intentional sacrifice for the sheep, intentionally laying down his life for them. To lay it down means that you do so voluntarily. There's no twisting of the arm. There's no promise of some kind of a future glory by man. There's nothing other than the willingness that Jesus has to lay down His life for the sheep. In the face of our spiritual danger, our being separated from God for all of eternity and destined to a place called hell, which is very real, because of the stain of sin, Jesus voluntarily lays down His life as a sacrifice so we can be saved. He's called His sheep by name to salvation. He leads them out into fertile grounds for feeding. And He will intentionally and voluntarily lay down His life as a ransom for the sheep. Now, in contrast to the Good Shepherd, we're introduced here in verse 12 and 13 to the hired hand. Verse 12 and 13 read, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. So the hired hand is not necessarily a bad person or an evil person like the thieves and the robbers that Jesus has referred to earlier in this narrative. He's just an individual that works for wages, not a real shepherd. He has no vested interest in the sheep. He hasn't paid a price to own these sheep. He's not the owner of the sheep. He's just a hired hand who is given the responsibility to protect the sheep while they sleep in the fold and the real shepherd is somewhere else. Now, when taking care of the flock isn't too difficult or too dangerous, the hired hand is more than happy to take care of the sheep and collect a check. But at the sign of danger, when the wolf shows up, he is more interested in self-preservation than he is in protecting the sheep that he's been hired to protect. So he will protect himself by running away and leaving the defenseless sheep to fend for themselves, and inevitably the wolf will come and he will snatch the sheep and the, full, the, the flock will scatter all over the pastured land. Now, the hired hand could refer to the religious leaders that Jesus has been talking about, or it could simply be a way to emphasize the characteristics of the Good Shepherd and the verses that follow as a contrast to that of a hired hand who has no interest and no true care for the sheep that he is looking after. So, letter A, he dies for his sheep. He dies sacrificially. Letter B, He knows his sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. So the repetition here of I am the good shepherd is important because it emphasizes the mutual love relationship that exists between the shepherd and his sheep. Now, earlier in the passage, in verses 3 and 4, it tells us that Jesus, or excuse me, it tells us the shepherd calls out his sheep by name, And they follow Him because they know Him. And He leads them out to pasture. Here, it's very subtle, but it's very significant that Jesus no longer talks in the third person. He's now talking in the first person. 
I am the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for the sheep. I know them, and they know me. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. To know, in the biblical sense, is a very comprehensive term. It doesn't just mean facts and figures and dates and names and places and information. It's often used to describe the intimate love relationship that exists between husband and wife. In the Hebrew, it's often translated, had relations with, meaning there was this physical relationship that took place between the husband and wife. But it means so much more than this physical relationship that exists within marriage. To know means to have an intimate, experiential relationship with this other individual. Now, you can read biographies, you can listen to documentaries about famous people, you can get a sense of who they were and what they were like. You might even know what their hobbies were, but in no sense do you really know that person. You just have information about that person. There's no intimacy, there's no experiential knowledge, there's no interaction. It's just simply words on a page that give you some idea about what this person was like. Jesus says, I know my sheep. I have an intimate, experiential relationship with these sheep that I have called to myself. He knows you. He knows me. He knows everything about us. And He knows it intimately. In the grand sense of things, God sees everything that we do. He hears every word that we utter. He knows every thought before we even think it. But that's not what it means when Jesus says, I know my sheep. As creator of this universe and being the all-knowing God, He knows everyone and He knows everything about everyone. But this is very different. He knows His sheep intimately, experientially. And the great contrast to this knowing is expressed in Matthew 7.21 when Jesus talks about Judgment Day. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, listen, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice Lawlessness. You see, there's a, there's a stark difference between the all-knowing God who knows everything about everyone and the shepherd who knows his sheep intimately and experientially. We are to know him in the same way that he knows us, intimately and experientially. We are to love him first. We are to live for him alone. And we are to follow Him as He leads. This intimate relationship is mirrored by the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. He knows the sheep, and the sheep are to know Him like the Father and the Son. Verse 15, Even as the Father knows Me, and I know the Father, and I lay down My life for the sheep. So we see this incredible expectation, this standard of the kind of intimacy and experiential knowledge that we are to have with the Father, with the Shepherd rather, just like the Father 
knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. This mystery of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is usually very difficult to understand. It's difficult to explain. Any analogy is inadequate. But God has expressed Himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet He is one God. Jesus left His place in heaven and came into the earth that He created as the God-man, fully God and fully man, in a submissive, subservient relationship to the Father. And it is in this temporary existence as the God-man that Jesus says, I know the Father and the Father knows me. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Do we know Him intimately? Do we have experiential knowledge? In what ways do we need to grow in this? What must we do to deepen this knowledge that we are to have of Him? Well, of course, reading the Bible is a good thing. Praying is a good thing. But I don't believe that unless we truly strive to live for Him and lay our souls bare before Him, obey Him no matter the cost, I don't know that we will ever know the shepherd in the way that He desires and that He intends. Now with this great standard of knowing the shepherd like the Father and the Son know and love each other, it also communicates that there is this very real expectancy that we are to know Him. We have been given the ability to intimately know the Creator of this universe. We can know Him. It is man's highest honor and privilege. It is the sole purpose we've been placed in this world. It is to know Him. It is to enjoy Him. How well do you know the Shepherd? How well is your experience with Him growing and deepening as you give yourself to Him? Well, Jesus says that I lay down my life for my sheep. He dies for his sheep voluntarily, intentionally. He knows his sheep intimately, experientially. Let her see, he unites his sheep. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with the shepherd. Now, we visited this very briefly last week. But as we read this verse and as we begin to understand what it means, this should be an incredibly exciting verse for us. As we talked about this last time, in verse 3, when Jesus was talking about the shepherd going to the sheepfold and calling out his sheep, that sheepfold in that instance represented Judaism or the nation of Israel. And only the true believers of Judaism who placed their faith in Christ are the ones who are going to come out and follow him. The sheepfold there represented Judaism. The sheepfold here represents not the nation of Israel, but all Gentile nations. Which means you and I as Gentiles, not descendants of Abraham, not born into Judaism, now have the right and the privilege to have a relationship with God. If you remember in our study of Ephesians, we were once cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. We were once cut off from the promises that God made to His people. But now we have been grafted in. We have been joined together through the work of the Holy Spirit so that the two have become one. He will unite Jew and Gentile. This doesn't mean a lot to us, but if you remember in our study of Ephesians, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. 
This is a revolutionary concept that these two peoples who have nothing but hatred for one another are going to be united into one flock and they will have one shepherd. It took years and years for this unification to be understood. And there's tension about this unification all throughout the New Testament. In fact, when Paul wrote this some 30 years after Jesus died, it was still a contentious issue. But we see this expressed in the book of Acts after Peter had had his great vision. Acts 10.28, And he said to them, Peter speaking, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. It was unlawful to associate with anybody who was outside the nation of Israel. In fact, it was said that when you were in the common marketplace that was that was, had the presence of Gentiles, when you got back to your place, you had to go through a ceremonial cleansing because you had been defiled. That's the kind of disdain that, that existed between Jew and Gentile. And so Jesus is saying that there is another fold and I have to get them and call them and they will come into this fold and the two will become one. And they will have one shepherd. Notice what Jesus says here. This is very subtle. He says, I have other sheep not of this fold, indicating that it is a present tense possession. He already has other sheep who are in the other fold, but they have not yet heard the gospel. The gospel message has not been proclaimed to the Gentile nations. And when it does, then the elect will be called forth and they will then join the true believers in one sheepfold with a singular shepherd, the Messiah, Jesus Himself. He already has these sheep in His possession. He just hasn't called them out yet. God's kingdom will be made up of both Jew and Gentile who have placed their faith in Christ and accepted Him as their Lord and Savior, the Good Shepherd who has laid down His life for the sheep. One flock... One shepherd. Paul would explain it like this in Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, meaning that the body of Christ is singular, and the God of that body of Christ is in all, over all, through all. That's what that means. So here's the rub for you and I. There is the expectation that there will be unity within the body of Christ. And when there is not unity within the body of Christ, it means that the sheep are scattered from the shepherd. When there's friction in the relationship, it means there's some disobedience that hasn't been confessed and repented of. When there's a lack of unity within the church, it means that the sheep are not following the shepherd. There is to be unity within the body of Christ. And if God said, I can take the Jew and the non-Jew who have hated each other for centuries and I can bring them into one flock under one shepherd, you and I ought to get along better than we might. So there ought to be unity within the body of Christ. Jesus has cared for his sheep. He loves them, died for them willingly, voluntarily, unites them together. Number five in our outline, the Father loves the shepherd. <clears throat> Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life, 
so that I may take it up again. Now, when we read this, we have to be very careful that we don't understand this to be causation. The Father doesn't love the Son because He is going to lay down His life. That's not what that means. The love of the Father and the love of the Son within the confines of the Trinity is etched in eternity past. It is absolute and it is unchanging. God doesn't love Jesus because He's obedient. Jesus is obedient because of the love that He has for His Father. The mutual love that exists here is the main point of what Jesus is talking about. There is this intense connection between love and obedience that will get fleshed out in John chapter 15. Jesus loves the Father so much that He will willingly do whatever is asked of Him, including laying down His life for the sheep. Notice the purpose for which Jesus says He will lay down, his, lay down His life so that I may take it up again. His death wasn't an end of itself, right? His death had the resurrection in view. He died in order that He might rise again, conquering sin and death with the ability to rise to His ultimate glorification, back to His place of glory, And he continues this whole line of thinking in verse 18, I'm sorry, and says, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So as you think about that verse and what Jesus just said, and if you think about the agony that he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, where it says that he sweat like drops of blood and prayed, if there's some way for this cup to be taken away from me, God, please take it away. Jesus said, I have the authority to take this off of my plate. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. But that's not anywhere in my realm of consideration. I am not going to do that. I am going to lay it down willingly and voluntarily. I have the authority to take it up again, meaning the resurrection, because the Father said, this is what I can do. There's such love between the Father and the Son, He will always obey what the Father tells Him to do. As we've looked at all through the Gospel of John, He says, I only do what the Father tells me. I only go where the Father shows me. I only say what the Father tells me to speak. So when the Good Shepherd dies, it will not be by accident, it won't be by fate, it won't be a tragedy at the hands of misguided man. It is the predetermined plan of God set in eternity past to secure redemption for God's people. No one takes Jesus' life from Him. He willingly lays it down. When He was being Interrogated by Pilate and on trial, we'll look at this in John 19.11, Jesus answered and said, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Indicating that Pilate's authority to put Jesus on the cross was only his authority because God had granted it already. Jesus had the authority to preserve his life if he wanted, but he wasn't going to do that because of his faithfulness and obedience to what God has told him to do. So we see now the response that is going to come by way of this narrative that takes place. Verse 19, A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. As always was the case, 
Jesus' teaching creates division. Always. It always creates division. It still does today. While Jesus the man is admired for His work and His miracles and His social ministry, Jesus the master teacher who speaks the very things that come from the throne of God is often ignored or rejected because His words require a response that people are just not willing to make. And everything that Jesus says and everything that is contained within the Word of God by way of instruction, there's only two options. The first we see here in verse 20, that is to reject it. Verse 20, many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? This is one of about a half a dozen times where this accusation has been thrown against Jesus that he's crazy. You're crazy for listening to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's talking out of his head. So when you can't agree with something that Jesus says, or you don't like what Jesus says, the default is to just say, he's nuts. This guy makes no sense. Why would anybody want to listen to him? The other option is to accept. Verse 21, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So the objective reality is that no one could do what Jesus has done unless he had been sent by God and that God was with him. That was exactly what the blind man said. This uneducated beggar who's been born blind and has never had any formal training could refute the logic of the Pharisees. You can't can't explain someone being healed from their blindness apart from the work of God. And so those who understood that logic said, nobody but the one sent by God could do such a thing. And the things he's saying are not crazy. They are actually true. But here's the deal. You can't separate his miraculous works from his words. The demand that he makes that we either accept him and are a part of his fold or we reject him And we are not. You can't separate what he does and what he requires. We either accept it or we reject it. To accept it means that we're a part of his fold forever and forever and forever. I said this months ago. We are the forever people of God. He is the good shepherd. And we are the sheep that He is calling and caring for. In the past tense, we're the sheep that He laid His life down for so that we we could be cleansed from our sin. And He continues to care for us and guide us and direct us. And as sheep, we either follow or we stray away. Where are you in your spiritual journey today? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you know that you are the sheep of His pasture? Are you an unfaithful sheep? Have you wandered away? Are you straying from the faith, living a life of sin and self-preservation, self-gratification? Are you in a very difficult stage of life? Things are hard and they look like they might get harder. Well, be encouraged. Because he is the good shepherd. 
Always calling, always caring, always leading, always loving, always there. We're going to stand and sing this song, I Will Never Leave You. I hope this blesses your heart. Let's stand and sing.